My name is Max Moss. Um, in the previous century, my wife, uh, late wife, Linda, and I were the co-ministers of this church. And when she died in 1996, I retired in order to put my life together and raise our two teenage teenagers. This morning will not be the usual format. The two primary reasons that Unitarian Universalists go to church are one, for a good sermon or message, and two, for social contact. Now, the press has told us how the pandemic impacted things like sales, employment, profits, and alike, things that are easy to measure. But the pandemic has had a smashing impact on churches in ways less easily quantifiable and largely ignored. Zoom services are not like in-person services. We're cut off, we don't see each other, our social, we're cut out of our social, our, our special place, um, which could be called sacred space. We're at home alone. Now, I haven't been inside this building for more than two years since the pandemic uh, started. And, uh, you know, out of caution, okay, I'm not going here, I'm not going there. I can tell those of you at home, this is probably the safest indoor meeting space in Auckland because the virus cannot survive on hard surfaces for more than a few hours. It's aerosol, okay? They've done experiments in labs and they've managed to get it to survive for two or three days, but no more than that. So the first person who walked through that door that's built this morning, there was zero chance of them getting any virus in this building. It doesn't need a deep cleaning. The viruses have died days ago. So for those of you who follow, there's a huge high ceiling here, so that's a very good thing. We are all masked, and presumably we're all uh, social we were all social distancing, and presumably um, we are also uh, uh, fully vaccinated. So my first short, simple message this morning is: come back to the church on Sunday mornings. Okay, it is far safer than the chemist or the supermarket or the hardware store or the mall, okay? It's like having a swimming pool full of piranha and you drain the water for six days. They're all dead. Nothing, there's no virus. There was no virus in this building uh, an hour ago. Now, as for the things that Unitarian Universalists want most in the Sunday morning experience, uh, through a gargantuan effort, Clay, managed, Clay Nelson has managed to create Zoom services approximating our church services. He's found and downloaded music from sources from places I didn't know existed. And together with Paul Harworth and Rachel McIntosh, they have created Zoom services with breakout rooms and a free flow of music. I have no idea how they created this. 
I am deeply indebted, and we all are, to them for their ingenuity, skills, and devotion. But it's impossible to do with Zoom and social contact. The best we can do with Zoom are joys and concerns, break out rooms for discussions, and whole group discussions that follow. So this morning, I am going to tamper with the usual order of service in an attempt to give us some more social contact. The essence of my service will be the sermon and the breakout rooms and the full discussion that follows. And to do that, I'm going to cast aside some of our usual rituals. It's an experiment, so please bear with me. We'll see how it goes. Uh, in the mid-1970s, this poem was penned at Star Island, which is a Unitarian Universalist conference center 20 kilometers off the coast of New Hampshire. I was at a uh, some sort of uh, uh, poetry uh, workshop. And someone brought the words to the attention of Steve Finner, an enthusiastic UU songwriter and composer, and someone who enjoys sharing his music at workshops around North America. Steve lived in Vermont. And he put these words to music. And some churches began using that as part of their Sunday services. We know, for example, that the UU Church of Chattanooga, Tennessee, used it because uh, they've got uh, an exclusive, non-exclusive non licensing agreement on the, uh, the music that I got from Steve. In the early 1990s, Steve came to this church and he held a very successful and very enjoyable all-day workshop and he introduced us to this as a song. We sang it regularly, but after I resigned in 1996, we had a succession of many visiting ministers and short-term ministers and each at their own order of service, and gradually this disappeared from our repertoire. Okay, so about 20 years ago, I received a box of Christmas cards from a church in New Mexico. And you probably can't see this, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's a Christmas tree and there's a chalice on the top, and inside are these words. Um, and uh, in the back, on the back, it says the inscription on the inside is the verse recited during the lighting of the chalice at their church from New Mexico. And they sent me the card, the box of cards, as a sort of apology because they hadn't put down who the author of this, of these words was. I'm the author. So I would appreciate it if we'll say these, okay? Um, and I'll light the chalice, and then we'll have our joys and concerns. <laughs> Let there be light to drive away the darkness. Let there be wisdom to shine on the unknown. Let there be love to heal our moments. Let each of us light for one another. My story this morning, I call it a sermon, it's in the form of a letter, was written by David Rankin, who was the minister of this church very briefly uh, in late 1999. And it's called A Dead Soldier Looks at the War. Dear mother and father, 
My deepest apologies for not writing more often. Time lies heavy here, but it is not well used in writing or thinking. Please be believe me when I say that home has never been so dear. I love you. My present assignment is in a small village in the hills to the south of the capital. Our unit has the duty of searching out and destroying enemy concentrations in the countryside. Let no one tell you of the glories of war. I no longer have the illusions of a raw recruit. All of the men are weary. Most of the men complain. No one wants to die. The morale is high, if only in order to survive. That is the point now. The only point to survive. It is the only glory. I've learned that this small, forsaken land halfway around the world is part of a very old world. Our own history is but a single page when compared to the long history of these ancient people. It is a ceaseless flow of events, timeless and with no real beginning and nothing to end. Yet by our lights and conditions, these people are primitive and backward. Pure water is a luxury. A soft bed is a dream. Most villages have no sanitation. Despite official claims, starvation is still rampant. All our efforts to improve the conditions, to train the natives, to raise the standard of living, to reform the government, all have amounted to nothing. Only the rich get richer. I suppose war and good intentions can never coexist. We destroy towns and build villages. We slaughter young men and educate their children. We spread disease and distribute medicines. We burn forests and plant small trees. The noble purpose does not keep pace with the intense destruction. It is a costly lesson. The enemy are not professionals. Most prisoners are often 15 to 19 year olds. 10 and 12 year olds are not uncommon. Many are women, I've seen them myself. While this is a reluctant confession quite recently formed, I have come to respect them. They are not well trained or equipped. They are young and small in stature. Yet they are absolutely fanatical, extremely loyal and virtually unyielding in combat. Then too, they believe they are fighting for a righteous cause, for freedom and independence of their homeland. There is no dissuading them. I have finally accepted the status of foreigner. It is not easy at first to meet the cold stares of the people, which express such an obvious hatred and open hostility for an army of liberation. The great majority do not want us here. They do not want this war. They are merely caught in the rush of events. Most of the villagers do not even take sides. How can they? Why should they? The enemy butchers whole families. We destroy their crops and animals. The enemy are without honor and decency. We are the allies of a weak and corrupt ruler. So the people suffer patiently while others decide their fate. They bear the burden of war. Still, I would have liked to
to have won their respect, and now even that is gone. Is it not sad that the judgment of history comes long after the participants are dead? I mean, the statesmen, the soldiers, the civilians, everyone is gone before history determines the reasons, the meanings, the effects, and the justice of it all. You understand? I dread thinking all of this will be a footnote in a dry historical document, a meaningless affair. The actors should know the script and the play before the play begins. Perhaps we do, but the, we play our roles to the bitter end. The troops received a, received a directive today. Over one third of the men have caught disease from the local women. We have been told, quote, the only permanent relief for the mating urge can be obtained through speedy victory and return to home, unquote. Now, many of us feel this is a better reason for fighting than all the other reasons advanced. I knew the people at home had doubts about this war from the very beginning, so I'm not surprised it has become increasingly unpopular. But the old men who plan our wars will not be moved by youthful protest. For centuries they have sent armies out with regularity to dictate, control, or conquer. It has become a privilege of old age. The youthful demonstrators of today are the old men of tomorrow. Forgive the cynicism. It is a soldier's luxury. We know nothing about war. There are no lectures, no speeches, no debates, just the drab, miserable, wasted faces of men who know only how to die. I'm not disloyal. I condemn no one, or is it everyone? I have no solutions. I'm just here. We're all just here. Our eyes still see, our hands still move, our hearts still beat. But we do not know if we are still alive. Many of us wonder what it would be like to come home. We fear peace as well as war. We have no skills. We are weary and broken. We are older and wiser, but changed. Others will not understand us. What life is there after the crucible of war? I remember the soldiers from the last war the welcome, the marching through the streets, the cheers. And then as the years pass, the pot bellies, the ludicrous caps, the worn out stories. A veteran is more pitiful than a whore. But perhaps all is mere melancholy. When I return, I will once again sit in the sun and listen to the children play. I will laugh again, I will dream again, I will love again. The noise of battle, the ugliness of war, the smell of death, all will pass away with a whisper of the wind. I can't predict the end. We, admit, we exist amid hope and despair, between rumors of peace talks and of larger war, between orders of troops withdrawing and orders of renewed offensive warfare, between the news of the great victories and the knowledge of the truck-crushing defeats. 
we have that much in common with the peasants. We too are caught in the middle of a gigantic puzzle. I think the end will come when everyone is bored. Do you remember, Mother, how I used to tremble as a child when human life was in danger? There was nothing greater, nothing more sacred than life. Yet here life is wasted, worthless. Flesh is cheap, blood is free. Only the dead are counted here. All wars are a contest of the dead. Yesterday I came across a body in a field. It had grown rigid and appeared like a grotesque statue. In the pocket, in the pocket of the vest I found a note, wet and stained, which read, Let us turn our faces to the earth. Let us sleep upon our laurels. Nothing makes any difference. I noticed two medals on the chest. They had not stopped the bleeding. We are not yet civilized. With all our learning, with all our discoveries, with all our achievements, the human race is still in its infancy. The future will write comedies of our history. We are still savages and cannibals who eat our own. A change must come. But when? I do not know. It's time to rest. Tonight we go out to seek the enemy. What a game to play. Please extend my greetings to old friends and, of course, my love to all the family. I miss you terribly. I love you. Postscript. Pardon me, postscript. As I lay thinking about this letter, I realize how it may shock you or cause dismay or pity. My first thought is to burn it and to begin another in a manner more pleasant. But you, of all people, must know that I cannot lie or feign good humor. Already there's too much pretending. I do have hope. I have not mentioned hope, but through all the disillusionment, through all the horror, through all the regrets of yesterday and fears of tomorrow, it persists and gives me strength. A man without hope is only a latent force, only a possibility, like a stone waiting for the blow from the iron to bring forth sparks. A man without hope is dead. What I like is faith. It is, is, is not this the missing element? What our generation needs is inspiration, the stimulus that will turn hope into reality. What we desperately lack as a people is the spiritual force that will provoke us to implement our rational solutions with kindness and tenderness. What we need is the passionate allurement, the daring courage, the risk-taking spirit of a bold, new faith. Is it possible? I don't know. But I am amused and heartened that even here, among the poor peasants, in these dark times and in this infested land, there are signs of such a faith. The other day, an old villager disclosed that a child will be born, a lamb of God, he said. 
In time, he will change men's hearts and establish justice on earth and bring peace to all the world. Hosanna, Hosanna, I replied in his native tongue. Oh, save, we pray, save. Your son, Marcus Centilius, servant of Rome in Bethlehem in the land of Judea. <laughs> 